Shavanasana. This afternoon we return to Shamatha without a sign, or awareness of awareness. Some of you are still finding this a bit elusive, a bit difficult to grasp onto. And one major reason for that is, as you practice it, you may be expecting to experience something you don't experience, and therefore feeling you're not doing it right. In the meantime, not noticing what you are experiencing, which would have entailed doing it correctly. So, this practice is really one of shaving off rather than adding to. That is, it's not a matter, as you venture into the practice, of now being aware of something you weren't aware of already, which frequently is the case when you're practicing shamatha. Focusing on a Buddha image or your breath, you weren't aware of that, oh, now I'm aware of my breath. Or you weren't aware of your thoughts, oh, now I'm aware of my thoughts. With awareness of awareness, before I ask the following question, you already know the answer. Are you aware that you're aware? You already knew it. Whether it was implicit, whether it was explicit, whether you articulated it, but you already knew it before you knew anything else, before you knew whether you're in Phuket or in Bangkok. There was already a knowing there, which is indubitable, really cannot be denied in any rational fashion or even doubted in any rational fashion. So this practice is just resting in that ever so simple, fundamental, existential core awareness of just being aware. So to imagine it, of course the practice does not entail imagining it, but experiencing it, but first of all to imagine it, I'll just give you the metaphor, the analogy that I've given in the past, and that is imagine that you are in a perfect sensory deprivation tank, where you have no sensory experience whatsoever, and then all of your thoughts, memories, images, all the activities of the mind go flat. So is there anything left? And this, yeah, you're aware that, you're aware. You might be aware this, boy, there's not much happening. In fact, there's nothing happening. This is like a blank three-dimensional holographic nothing. But still you're aware of how little is going on. And you are aware that you're aware of that. So you're resting in that. You're resting in that. And it is a form of knowing, and it's actually crucial to recognize that and to sustain that flow of knowing in this practice. If you don't, you're falling into laxity or dullness, and then oh, habituating yourself to the cultivation of stupidity. Not a good idea. I think marijuana is quite sufficient for that. If you really want to try to you know, just stone yourself to death, you know, that'll do it. Now, this is not to fall into a trance, but rather to go into blazing clarity, the knowing of knowing itself, so it's radiantly clear. And there's another kind of knowing, and this is one reason I think it is elusive. That is, we're very familiar with two types of knowing. We can call them Aristotelian types of knowing, but everybody has it, all of us have it. And that is, one is by way of our five physical senses. So, I look over at Paula's shawl, and I see that it's beige. It's perfectly clear. It's beige. Right? And so I'm getting, I'm knowing something by way of visual perception. So what's new? So we know by way of the physical senses, and now, fantastically over the last 400 years, we've extended that knowing of the world around us by way of 
technology, telescopes, electron microscopes, and so forth and so on. But it is really fundamentally more of the same, and that is we're looking outwards with technology, the enhancement of our senses, or opening up portals of perception like sonar, which dolphins have that we don't, but still we're getting more information. But it's still by way of our senses, because by the time the sonar information gets to us, it's by way of the visual, right? The, the electron microscope, by, way, by, the, by the time it gets to us, it's by way of the visual. So it's still, fundamentally, it's boiling down to sensory perception. But of course, it's not the only way we know things. And if we rely on Aristotle here, the other way we know things in a way that is not uniquely but is exceptionally human is, of course, knowing things by way of reasoning, by way of concepts, thoughts, analysis, logic. And so we know that. And for the modern world, rooted in the Aristotelian vision, that's how we know anything. Either through using the mind, conceptually, rationally, logically, using ideas and concepts, or using our senses, direct perception. Uh, but for many people, those are the only two ways of knowing. And I actually heard a neuroscientist about two years ago when she referred to uh, introspection. She said introspection was thinking about thinking. And that's, that's not wrong. It's not foolish. But of course, it's absolutely not the contemplative's notion. That, that, that's just more thinking. And so it's an inverted thinking, and that's fine. If you want to define it, you know, add that as one more definition of introspection in the Oxford English Dictionary. But it completely misses the point from the meditator's perspective. right? And the meditator's perspective is, there is a way of knowing here that Pythagoras knew about, Socrates knew about, Plato knew about. One of the terms that crops up is noitos. Noitos, Greek term. And it is a direct knowing of non-sensory phenomena. So, in other words, non, not sensual, but it's a direct knowing, so it's not by cogitation, by analysis, by reasoning, or logic. So, we could call that very loosely intuition. And, of course, we're dealing with a very loosely defined term in English, and I know there have to be cor cor corresponding terms in, in Spanish, Italian, German, and so forth. But loosely intuition... If we want to be a bit sharp with this term and not fuzzy, let's say intuition is not just a hunch or a good guess, let's imagine that there is a, a, a mode of knowing that is intuitive knowing, noetic knowing. And it's knowing as much as I know that this is a cell phone. I mean, I, I got it. I figured it out. I know it. And so in a similar fashion, noitos, or this direct knowing, is a form of knowing, but it's not by way of logic, not by way of thinking, it's not conceptual, and it's not sensory in terms of the five physical senses. So we know that our ability to know logically, rationally, can be enhanced through training in mathematics, logic, philosophy, scientific thinking, and so forth. You get really smart, and you learn how to know things rationally using your intellect, and that, that's clearly an ability that can be enhanced through education, and it is. And then we know through through technology, instruments of observation, such as telescope, etc., that we can enhance our sensory perception. Right? In all of modern education, where is the education, where is the class in intuition, intuitional development 101? You know, I mean, hardly anybody would, would say intuition just doesn't exist. Even the most hard-nosed scientists would say often, well... I just had this intuitive sense and then something, and then I, then I conceptualized it, formalized it, 
theorized it, and then I put, put, and then I pursued it, and I found it was not true, or it was true. But many of the great scientific discoveries, whether it's the DNA, the coiling, the you know the loops of the DNA, or whether many many of the other great scientific breakthroughs from Crick and Watson and DNA and so forth, come from a level that was not just observing and not just thinking, but something bubbled up, and then. It was already there, but then it got articulated, crystallized, rigidified, and then, you know, then scientific study begins. But it begins in intuition. Of course, it's not only for science. It can be a business model. Whoever thought of the iPad? There had to be an intuition there. So well, maybe this would be good. Or an iPhone, or so many other kinds of technologies, lasers and so forth. And intuition, and then pursued. And so, if it's worthwhile to develop our logical abilities, our rational abilities, develop our sensory abilities by way of technology and so forth, maybe it'd be a good idea to develop, to refine and hone intuitive ability. And how would you do that? Shamata? <laughs> it's a wild guess. Actually, it's an intuitive guess. To take the ability you already have, and I would say you have the nucleus of it, you have the nucleus of it in that sensory deprivation tank when everything is shut down and you still know something. It's not sensory. Nothing's happening sensory. It's not logical. You're not thinking. Remember? Thoughts went flat. So let's just call that kind of a nucleus of intuition. Nuitos. Or in the Buddhist tradition, yogic perception. Yoga pratyaksha. It's called yogic perception by means of which when one can know things that are real. They're not constructed. They're not fabricated. They're not simply conceptual. They're as real as a cushion. They're as real as a glass of water. But you're knowing them not by way of the five senses, not by way of concept concepts, because they cannot be known directly by way of conceptual mind. They can be known directly by way of this non-conceptual mental awareness. Call it intuition. Call it noitos. Call it yogic per per perception. And when you are resting in the awareness of awareness, you're just resting in that. And the more, in the more sustained fashion you do it, it becomes unveiled, unveiled, unveiled. Very good for you. Next step. Very good. It'll bring a lot more clarity. Brilliance, radiance, vividness. Breakthrough. Very good. So, When your mind settles, when your mind dissolves into this substrate consciousness, which of course is the point of awareness of awareness, your awareness is simply withdrawn from the world that is ever so familiar to modernity and to humanity as a whole. The world of the five physical senses and the world of concepts. In other words, you've just withdrawn from everything familiar. right? The sensory and the conceptual. That kind of makes up our world, our desire realm. Right? The appearances arise, we conceptually formulate, objectify objects, and then desire them. It's like we're self-hallucinating ourselves, self-hypnotizing ourselves. We conjure up something out of, you know, there's the appearances, and then we, we conceptualize an object that has those appearances as objects, as, as its attributes, and said, that'll make me happy. It's, it's, it really is crazy. I, it's literally, it's really crazy to conceptually formulate an object and think it will give you pleasure. 
That's crazy. That's kind of a form of major hallucination. So, when your mind settles, this delusional, bifurcating, dualistically grasping mind, when it dissolves into the substrate, consciousness, by the physical senses, dormant, conceptual mind, dormant, knowledge, not dormant. You're still knowing. You are now intuitively knowing. And your awareness is no longer in a whole dimension of existence, which in, in the modern world is considered to be reality, the universe. And that's a desire realm. That's all scientists and, and pretty much everybody else knows about. Your awareness is no longer in that dimension of reality. You have slipped into another dimension. What really, more literally, you've slipped out of one direct, one dimension, and you've not yet immersed yourself in another. So I'll use a term. I know it's a, it's totally poetic. I don't mean it literally, but it's kind of fun. This substrate consciousness is like slipping into a wormhole. And if you know that from science fiction, but it's based in Einsteinian physics, relativity theory, the wormhole where you can it just it's a it's a hole through space time, and you enter one place and you wind up someplace radically different, maybe many light years away. Right now it's science fiction, but actually the idea comes from good physics, relativistic physics. <clears throat> when your awareness slips into the substrate consciousness, it's slipped out of all dimension of the desire realm, and it's poised to slip into another dimension of reality. Very different dimension. Rupadatu, or form realm. Form realm. It's coextensive. The form realm isn't someplace else. It's not on the backside of the moon or another galaxy or someplace. Form realm is right here. But you don't access it, not with the instrument's technology, not with your five physical senses, not with reason. You access it by achieving shamatha, not vipassana, not even dzogchen. Dzogchen is not designed to gain access to the form realm. That's not its point. Or vajrayana practice, or, or bodhicitta, and so forth. No, it's a very simple thing. This is shamatha is designed to move you beyond the limitations of the desire realm and once you've achieved shamatha, you're just resting in the substrate consciousness, you're right on the cusp, right on the threshold between the desire realm and the form realm. Your awareness no longer belongs to, it's not embedded in the desire realm, which is where it is now. But it's not yet made its home in, it's not immersed itself in the form realm either. For that, you need to achieve full jhana, the full state complete state of the first jhana. Then your mind slips over and now is immersed in, makes its home in, another dimension, form realm. But when you've achieved access to the first jhana, in other words, achieved shamatha, you're right there, it's like a wormhole. You're not here, you're not there. You could go either way. You could go ahead and fully achieve jhana, which means then you slip over into that other dimension. Or you could slip back, open your eyes, and come back to this world, and then you're back in the desire realm, but you're right there, right, right on the cusp. Now, this very straight path, this unelaborated path, this Maserati path of Dujum Lingba, of just Shamata Vipassana, Tekcha and Turtya, Shamata Vipassana, the breakthrough and the direct crossing over, it's just like one of those express trains that has hardly any stops. You know, it just scoots by all the villages and only stops in Paris, London, and so forth. Whatever. I know there isn't one between Paris, uh, London and Paris, but you get the idea. <laughs> only the big cities. The only big city. But it skips all the others. And so you get there. Well, there's all kinds of interesting... T um, you know, you arrive at, at Shamatha land, 
and you've, you know, you get the tourist bulletins up all over the place. You know, you could visit this. There's all kind of tourist attractions. <laughs> you could go into, you know, the forum realm, the first jhana. You might try this. You might try this. Uh, a lot of attractions there in the phenomenal world. But if only this incredibly straight, fast-track express train, have Europe and Japan, or then you just, you don't even, you just pause for a moment. That was nice. And then, you know, you hit the accelerator again and you're right after Vipassana, cutting through all the three realms. Now, it's very well known in the Dzogchen tradition especially, that I met a lot of people get to that first stop. It's kind of a stop. You pause there for a little while. You know, get to Shamatha. First, first stop. Anybody want to get off? And a lot of people, I mean, according to the Tibetan accounts for centuries now, a lot of people get to Shamatha and say, they look out the window and say, yeah, I don't care where this train's going. This looks really good to me, you know? And they hop out of the train. And because there's three hotels there, that each one is just better than the other. One is the Hotel Bliss, the Hotel Luminosity, and then the Hotel Non-Conceptuality. And each one has great views and fantastic food and so forth. And they think, why should I get on that train? I don't even know really where it's going, but I know these hotels are really, really great. <laughs> and I've got a free pass. I have a Euro pass for this hotel for the rest of the summer, you know? So why should I go anywhere when I know this is so good? And so what hangs, what happens if you just kind of take up permanent residency, which of course is not permanent, but you would like to think it is, in the Hotel Bliss, five-star Hotel Bliss, well, you you stay there and you come out of your samadhi and eat a little bit, poop, and then go back in again until your body just grows up, grows grows old, shrivels up and dies, in which case mm, your lease just ran out. <laughs> and then you take birth. If you if you were living in hotel bliss, then you take birth in the desire realm. As some deva, some god, some being in the desire realm. Still desire realm, but much nicer than where we live. <laughs> So there it is. If you become attached to having achieved shamatha, if you're really drawn to, cling to, do not want to let go of the bliss of that, you don't need to for as long as you're alive. You just hold on to it. I like this. I like this. I really, really like this. And, oh, now I'm dead. Fooey. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're born into it. Just, you know... The desire realm. Just you're born as a deva. You hang out for a while, and then you piss away all your good karma, and then you're back to square one. You've you've gone nowhere. You just went on a Ferris wheel. You just went on a little ride, you know. And then you, they just drop you off exactly where you were before. It took maybe you know some thousands of years in a, de, in, a in a deva realm, but it still drops you off. When the karma is exhausted, you're nowhere that you weren't before. Now, if you really hang out in hotel luminosity. Then it said, until your, until your lease expires, you've used up all your money, then you die. Then you said you're born in the form realm, which is nice, it's longer, very luminous. Uh, but of course, then the karma gets pissed away there too, and would still leaves you in the same place. Or if what you really are drawn to, you cling to, and do not want to be depart, depart from when you're resting in the substrate consciousness, is non-conceptuality. You just love the serenity, the spaciousness, the vastness. You might even think it's Dhammadhatu. You might think, I must have Buddha, and this is, this is Dharmakaya. Well, no, it's not. It's just non-conceptuality of the substrate consciousness. But nobody told you. Now you have no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but if you hang out in hotel non-conceptuality, then it said you're just going to be born in, the non, in a formless realm. Very long. 
if you're really intelligent up there, you'd know it's extremely boring, but you're not intelligent, so you don't find it boring. It just lasts a long time. <laughs> and then you piss away the karma, and then you're right back where you started. So that's why clinging to, adhering to, grasping onto any of those three qualities in the long term, or the short term, winds up being simply a dead end. But each of those is an excursion, a way you can get off the train if you like. Another way you can get off the train, that is this fast track, the, the Dujon Express, you know, <laughs> going directly to Vipassana to realize the ultimate nature of all phenomena as empty of inherent nature. That's big. Because that's just, that man's really big. That's really big. Realizing that, realizing pristine awareness, unveiling pristine awareness, becoming perfectly awakened, that's the Dujon Express. But once you've achieved shamatha, you might find again these really wonderful excursions, you know, day excursions that don't cost that much, that are really, really interesting. Like you might decide, oh, it'd be really cool to go ahead and immerse myself in the form realm. None of my buddies know about that. That'll be going where no, I've never gone before. Probably never my, none of my friends have gone before. To venture into the form realm and to make your home there, to master it, to achieve the first jhana. It's a possibility. I mean, it would certainly be, if you had a really long life, that might be an interesting way to spend a few years. Since we don't know how long our life is, maybe not such a great idea. But you do that, and there are all kinds of interesting things to be discovered. Really, really interesting. It's another dimension. Multiple layers, multiple dimensions within it, like sub-dimensions. There are beings who live there, and they live in different dimensions of it. They're called devas. Davis of the form realm. I strongly, strongly suspect that Pythagoras knew about them, Socrates knew about them. Because Socrates, Plato, Socrates hyphen Plato, when they spoke of what happens after death, they described exactly the bardo. I mean, you, you look at it, you say, it's the bardo. I mean, there's no difference. You're in the bardo. And what Plato says, Plato, Socrates says, that at that point, if you die as a philosopher, this is back when the word meant someone who has radically transformed his whole way of life and way of viewing reality and doesn't simply have a PhD in philosophy. <laughs> Big difference. I mean, it's like a Buddhist contemplative versus a person who has a PhD in Buddhist studies. Both have their legitimacy, but they are very, very different. Right? Well, when Socrates spoke of a philosopher, he meant someone who had so refined his or her mind that they had really just outgrown, matured beyond the ordinary carnal craving, the sensual craving, the cravings for the desire realm. That's really what, that's a philosopher. A philosopher, through whatever means, has simply grown up and seen through the illusion of concocting these physical objects and then scrambling after them thinking, that'll make me happy. You know, just grow up, break through it, get real, and becoming completely disillusioned in one's pursuit of happiness from all the goodies of the desire realm, and dying with that radical disillusionment. Whether through samadhi or whatever means, samadhi does clearly seem to be part of the Pythagorean agenda. Oh, and so if the philosopher dies, having already really abandoned that craving for the bounties of the desire realm, then Plato says, then that philosopher who's in the bardo doesn't turn around and just take rebirth again, but actually goes to a higher realm. Sounds an awful lot like the form realm. I think it is the form realm. 
Whereas the ordinary person, who's not a philosopher, who dies and really is grasping, oh, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, and then, oh, I'm gone. And then you're disembodied, and you really don't like it. And after you've scrambled around, been confused for a while, and seen a lot of kind of dreamlike imagery, and gone from here to there, uh, then what Plato says is after some time, you just develop this irrepressible urge, craving. You want to be re-embodied again. Plato. You want to be re-embodied again, and lo and behold, you get what you hope for. You may not like the fact that you're barking the next time. <laughs> but at least you got a body. You know? It may be a squid. That wasn't much fun, but at least it's a body. You know, No, no backbone, but uh, you can't have everything. But one way or another, if you still crave to be embodied, then you'll get, you know, your craving will be satisfied. Whereas the philosopher takes off. Well, what would that, and he called it the, the, the Platonic realm of ideas, pure ideas, which are real, they're not conceptual abstractions. They can be known by, by way of noitos. Well, lo and behold, in the Buddhist view, and I learned this only from one book, but by an outstanding scholar, really related scholar, it's a called, book called Buddhist Meditation in Theory and Practice by a Sri Lankan scholar by the name of Vajiranyana, first-rate scholarship, really, really good. Straight Pali Canon Theravada. Oh, yeah, really good. And he describes ways of achieving dhyana, that is, access to the first jhana, like shamatha, but then going beyond that and achieving full first jhana, or second, third, fourth. By way of the kasinas, or they're called klitsna, in Sanskrit. In Tibetan. Or a klitsna is like an emblem, an emblem, or a paradigmatic form, or one could say that one, that is, you use it, I mentioned before, like looking at a clay pizza, and then immersing yourself in this as an emblem, a symbolic representation of earth element, solidity and firmness throughout the entire universe. This is like the emblem of that, focusing on it until an acquired sign comes up, focusing on the acquired sign until the counterpart sign comes up. And the counterpart sign being far more subtle than the mere afterimage that, that occurs in your mind, the counterpart sign actually emerges from the form realm. So its origin is utterly different. It's not coming from that clay pizza. It's not coming from your mind. It's coming from another dimension, form realm, and you're accessing it. And if you're not just satisfied to have it come up, lose it, and then slip back into the bhavanga, but you go out fishing again and say, ah, that, that counterpart sign, that nimitta from the form realm of the earth element, that, I want to nail that one, I want to master that one. Well, then you achieve shamatha all over again on that. Rather than the acquired sign, you've already done that. The clay pizza, that was easy, and dog could do that. No, now it's, now it's shamatha on this, this counterpart sign. Which Vajiranyana, again, I don't speak with any, any authority, but I do know how to read. And I can be, I can parrot things quite well. And that is, it says that counterpart sign of the earth element, the nimitta, the sign of the earth element that belongs to the forum realm, he says, this is the conceptual quintessence, or the archetypal form. I think archetypal form would probably be best, because it's not really conceptual. It's an object of direct perception, yogic perception. Yoga prajaksha. Nanjorangonsum. Archetypal quintessence, archetypal form. That would be good translation. Now, this undoubtedly sounds like a whole bunch of metaphysics. You know, man, what do those Buddhists think of next? <laughs> and the only reason I'm interested in it, and, and you can tell I am 
not enough to actually go and do it because I could die any day and I just don't quite have time for this. Um, but I am interested. I think it would be other, cool if other people who are not in as much of a hurry as I am did it. Uh, and that is, how does this get real? I mean, why should anybody believe this? I'll tell you why. Achieve the first jhana. Fully achieve the first jhana. And master this archetypal form of the earth element. If you want to be really become a virtuoso, like a pianist who can master many types of music, play them all exquisitely, then master the other ones as well. Water, fire, air, space. Master them. Go back and achieve them again. Just go back on a fishing expedition and go back and get the archetypal form for each of the four or five elements. Master them with the power of samadhi. And then, and now this comes straight from Buddhaghosa, the Sudhimaga, that's where the source is. Master that, preferably in more than one jhana. In other words, this could take a while. And then, once you've mastered it, then you can start actually producing results that ordinary mortals can receive. Not just insider talk among people who have achieved jhana. But actually you can just, you can show stuff. You can show stuff. This is the hypothesis. And that is you can go into samadhi, achieve shamatha, go into the forum realm, and then get a lock, almost like in science fiction, like, like the tractor beam gets a lock on another spaceship and pulls it in. Ever seen Star Trek, any of those? Well, do this with your mind, get a lock. Get a lock, just like a tractor beam, or you know what? I think that's what I'm talking about. Get a lock on it, and so got it. So you can actually pull it in in a way. Get a lock on this archetypal form of Earth, which is the form of Earth for the entire universe. In fact, let's pause right there. And that is Buddhist cosmology. Now, this is all schools: Theravada, Mahayana, all schools of Buddhist cosmology rooted in the Buddhist teachings, the Abhidhamma and so forth, say that this entire phenomenal world that we're familiar with, the desire realm, cosmologically, cos- uh, I say there's another term, but, but cosmogony, cosmo- cosmonogically, but cosmogony is the formation of the universe. In terms of the formation of the universe, this whole world that we're familiar with actually emerges from the, de- from, from the form realm. The form realm is more basic. Its effulgence, its display, is what we experience here as space-time matter energy and then the coarse minds of the, of the desire realm. But this is emerging from a deeper substratum or more subtle dimension of reality, which is the form realm. I spoke with this Hanan Dalai Lama about this just recently. It came up somehow, uh, one-on-one, and he confirmed it. I was surprised. I mean, I knew that, of course, there's form in the form realm. That doesn't take much intelligence. Um... But he commented that, in fact, there is a type of materiality. I checked. Bembo, or Duluduba. There's a type of materiality in the forum realm. It's not just a mental space. It's not imagination. It's not just like a dream. But it's a very subtle form of materiality that you can't access or measure if you're located in the desire realm. It's a subtler dimension. So the subtler can measure the coarser. The coarser can't measure the subtle. That's just a universal law. Right, but there's a type of subtle materiality there. I suspect that these archetypes, these nimittas, the tama in Tibetan, of earth, water, fire, air, and so forth, they're they're a type of materiality, but formal materiality, and it's out of them, out of these five elements, that 
in the formation of the universe, they project, are projected out as the world we experience, but they're like a holographic display from a subtle dimension. If you'd like to see, read up on, I'm speaking to people on the pad podcast too, who have actually books and libraries available that we don't have here, happily. Um, there is a fascinating, utterly fascinating correspondence between Carl Jung, I know his name is very familiar to everybody, and another name not so familiar except for to people who know physics very well, and that's Wolfgang Pauli. Wolfgang Pauli was one among many of the Schrödinger, Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, Einstein, and others, the great architects of modern quantum mechanics. Paul Dirac is another name. Well, Wolfgang Pauli was right up there among the brilliant of the brilliant, a Nobel Prize winner, of course, in physics, so we have this absolutely world-class physicist. Apparently he just, he awed people by his intelligence. Well, he got into a years-long correspondence with Carl Jung. And that was an interesting two bed, part bed partners getting into bed with each other intellectually. And they came up with a whole theory of what they call the unus mundus, a one world, a dimension of reality that is not bifurcated into the coarse world of mind and matter that we're familiar with, but is archetypal. And there are archetypes of mind and archetypes of matter, but on a much subtler level, and they're projected out into the world we experience. But this is a more unitary world, a subtler dimension. And so Carl Jung, as a psychologist, had no, no problem talking about the realm of archetypes, collective unconscious, all of that. Um, he's a psychologist. They can get away with a lot. But the... <laughs> They can say anything, you know, primal screen therapy. Who, draw, who dreamed up that one? And he still said it in public, you know. But if you're a physicist, you know about Laurie, you have to kind of watch your, watch your back. Because they're pretty tough, they're a tough crowd over there. Psychologists are all eating ice cream and the, you know, the physicists are eating nails. It's a very different diet. And so Wolfgang Pauli engaged in this incredibly provocative correspondence with Carl Jung for years, but he would not let the correspondence be published until after he was dead. <laughs> Very much like Copernicus came up with the wonderful vision of the earth, the sun being an earth. Yes, he, he wrote it, and he said, I don't want to be burned. <laughs> I don't want to be excommunicated, so publish it after I'm dead, then I can go, nya, 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 from heaven. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you publish one day before, you know. <laughs> so Volkan Pauli, same kind of attitude. It was fear-driven. He did not want to be discredited, disgraced, ridiculed, and excommunicated from the scientific community. Therefore, yeah, you can publish it after I'm dead. And I've gone off to physicist's heaven. Maybe in that Unus Mundus. But coming back to Buddhism, and so there we are, a bit of some parallels. Plato, Wolfgang Pauli, Carl Jung, Buddhism, cosmogony, and now we have a yogi actually putting these theories to the test. Now that would be interesting. Otherwise it sounds like really cool metaphysics and mystical mumbo-jumbo, frankly. I mean, really cool mystical mumbo-jumbo, but it still sounds mumbo-jumbo. Uh, so here's the yogi, having achieved first jhana on the earth element, masters it, Gets it in the tractor beam of a samadhi, his laser pointer. He nails it, that is, he masters it, and then he comes, then while maintaining, an high, maintaining a highly meditative state, very, very focused, he comes back enough to the desire realm, to the world of this, of Phuket, for example, uh, to the desire realm, 
And he looks for a target, like a pool of water. Like, um, the ocean would be nice. So he gets his target, target area. Goes back into the first jhana. And then as he's coming out, he takes that archetype, that nimitta of the earth element, and as he's coming back to the form realm, he slings it and projects it with the power of his samadhi onto a body of water. And then he walks on it. And it becomes quite a tourist attraction. People are coming from all over the world. <laughs> but that's the idea. Superimpose the nimitta of space on a rock, and you walk through it. Superimpose earth on the sky, walk into it. And so on. Fire element also. Superimpose it, get fire. So that would be an interesting experiment. But when all is said and done, imagine you got really good at it. You know, wherever you want, wherever you wanted to go, you can just superimpose earth element and then walk on it. You've done it, you know, you've done it again and again. And you phone up your friends saying, hey, Katinka, wanna watch me? I got a swimming pool on the back. Wanna watch me do it? <laughs> Alan, I've seen you do that seven times already. I'm busy. I've got, it's a really good movie. But I think maybe, Lynn might be interested. Why don't you phone her? <laughs> I'm sorry, Alan, I'm meditating right now. Check out with Rinchana. She might want to watch it. It's kind of like wanting other people to watch your home movies. You know, After you've done it and people have seen it, what then? And after the scientists look at it and say, wow, Shazam, I guess we're wrong. Um, what then? You know, really? Really, what then? I mean... What was wrong with swimming? <laughs> I mean, swimming is quite quite nice, especially in Phuket. Why would you want to walk in that water when it's so nice to swim in it? So you can see how after the initial novelty wears off, even your friends don't want to see you do it anymore. You have to start a circus and, you know, keep on going to villages where they've never seen it before. After a while, you kind of just look like a circus act. And you wonder, was it really worth it when I could have gotten on the Dujon Express? So we come to our practice without much further ado. <laughs> Slipping into the wormhole of the, su- of the substrate consciousness, which we take off to the form- formless realm, the form realm, deva realms within the desire realm, bring you right back to your ordinary human desire realm. It's right there, undefined, a wormhole, ready to traject you off in any direction you like, or you can use it to penetrate right through to realizing emptiness of all phenomena discovering why the wormhole even works, the ontological relativity of all phenomena, and then penetrate through that, even the conventional sense of I am or mind, penetrate to pristine awareness. So as you recall, and this is where we'll wrap up, in terms of strategy, now we need a method. Now we need a method. First step is just to stop and do nothing at all. It's really just kind of turn off, you know, all the doings, all the doings, all kinds of doings, mental doings, sensory, physical, motor, all of that. Just stop all the doings. Totally de- deactivate your coarse mind, your sense of I am, I'm controlling, I'm doing. Just turn it all off. It's rebooting. It's rebooting the whole system. Just, this is dysfunctional. Ordinary life really sucks. So just turn it off without falling asleep. 
and just rest and don't do anything, don't look at anything, don't do anything whatsoever, just don't fall asleep and be there without distraction, without grasping. And as you do that for a little while, I think some of you have experienced it, it's quite natural, as you're sitting there not doing anything else and not attending to anything else, you've approximated the perfect sensory deprivation tank with no thought happening. And as you're just sitting there doing nothing at all and just being aware, it's just bound to dawn on you. And it's a nice verb. It's just bound to dawn on you. This certainly is being aware. Not of much, but not nothing. There's a knowing that's going on. And I know that there is awareness taking place. And then you've established a ground. You've established a starting place. You know something that is not sensory and it's not logical or rational. It is knowing something. You've established a ground. right? Second phase, you start to do something. That's the nature of the path. The path entails doing something. Right? A path, a spiritual path, to from here to there, from delusional existence to awakening, liberation. You start to do something. You start to really invert, to withdraw your awareness away from all appearances. Bear in mind, it's not going into your head, into your heart, or any place. It's simply a withdrawal from all appearances, a retraction, a recoil, a loss of interest, a disengagement from all appearances into that nucleus, that nuclear simply knowing, being aware, but it's quite forceful, it's strong, it's concentrated, it's unified, it's effortful, banishes laxity and dullness. And it's coming into, I've used the word luminosity, but then some people think, oh, I'm not getting, I'm not getting, I'm not seeing anything bright. Bright is an appearance, if it happens, you're not there. Withdraw from all appearances. So I'll use another word. Luminosity is good, but if you think it's going to be bright, then you're looking for something that won't happen, and if it does, you got it wrong. So I'll use another word, clarity. Clarity doesn't suggest something bright. I'll use another word, wakefulness. I'll use another word, mindful presence. Now that doesn't suggest any imagery at all. But it's just going right into that sense of being mindfully present, that sense of knowing, that sense of being aware. And it's sharp, it's clear, and that's going right into something that is present, inverting into it, and more and more vividly, clearly, and then I'll say luminously, wakefully, being aware of that awareness. And then, as that takes some effort, then to the extent that you exerted effort to invert, to that extent release effort completely into non-objectivity. So in the inversion, you're withdrawing from all appearances. As you release, you're releasing out beyond all appearances. If the appearances are ten feet in front of you, look to infinity. Look beyond them, whatever they are. Whatever it is. Look right, as if they're transparent, as if there's nothing to them, as if they're empty, because they are. Just release your awareness out into no object, and very specifically, into no thought. Whatever thought comes up, just banish them, burn them, discard them, release them instantly. And so into non-thought, into non-conceptuality, non-objectivity, 
while gently sustaining that thread holding the flow of the awareness of awareness. So as you're releasing, you're releasing into a negation. There's a Tibetan term, Andrei will know it, Gakdu. So you're affirming, you're aware of something that is present as you're inverting into awareness, and that is the cognizance, the luminosity, clarity of your own awareness. It's, it's there, you can, you can experience it, it's something. It's not tangible, but it's something to be experienced. And then when you're releasing, you're releasing into a negation, into an absence, ab- objectless, non-conceptual, empty. But what lingers there is just what was already there, and that is the awareness of awareness. So there's affirmation, and then there's negation. You're on a path now. Well, that's the nature of the path, isn't it? The path from being samsaric being to awakened being. You have to embrace, to adopt, to take to heart virtue, ethics, samadhi, wisdom. There are things to do, to be taken to heart, to be cultivated, right? And there are other things like mental afflictions and killing, stealing, lying, and so forth that are to be abandoned. So the nature of the path is gakdup, to abandon the unwholesome and to adopt the wholesome to adopt virtuous states of mind and to abandon mental afflictions, obscurations and so forth. That's the nature of a path. That's why you're going from here to there. You got rid of some stuff and you cultivated other stuff. And that's what this inversion is about. Inversion and release, inversion and release. You're on a path. And as you do so, it gets brighter and it gets emptier. Brighter and emptier. Brighter and emptier. And you're unveiling the obscurations. Dispelling the obscurations. That veil, your own pristine awareness. Now, after some time, whenever you feel like it, whether it's three minutes, five minutes, or or an hour, after some time, when you feel that the oscillation has done its work, the path has done what the path was designed to do, then release that oscillation and release it right in the middle. So don't release it in, don't release it out, just like a pendulum that just comes to rest in the center. Let your awareness just come to rest in utter release, right where it is, with no notion of inside or outside, inversion or release, just let awareness rest in in its own place. Resting in its own place, there's nothing to affirm and there's nothing to reject, to negate. Resting in its own place, it is already empty of thought and it's already luminously clear. But you don't have to affirm or negate either one, they already are and you're simply present with what is, and therefore you just rest in your best approximation of the substrate consciousness. And that's the fruition. So we have a ground, a path, and a fruition. Complete. Hey, Maho. Quite amazing, isn't it? Quite amazing. So let's stop talking about it. Now I can use far fewer words when we do it, Front-loaded a lot. Let's jump in and find a comfortable position.
Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze resting evenly in space but without attending to it. Take nothing as an object, do not focus on any appearance, sensory or mental. Just be present, sustaining the flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping.
And now begin the inversion and the release. If you don't yet have the hang of this practice, you might find it helpful to conjoin it temporarily with the in and out breath. Once you become familiar with the practice, disengage your attention from the breath and set your own rhythm. How long or short the inversion and the release take. See that your breath continues to flow in its natural rhythm without forcing it or modifying it by way of your meditation.
and release the oscillation and let your awareness come to rest right where it is. And simply sustain that flow of knowing.
So, here's we have three short questions, a bit longer one. We may get today, today, but if not, tomorrow. Here's a question about the culmination of the dying process, and that is this dark vision, the, the literally the dark mirror attainment, when your mind is imploded into the substrate consciousness just before the clear light vision. Is that the substrate itself, and does it just dissolve into clear light? Um, yes, I mean, for the ordinary individual who's not practiced shamatha, not gained a lucid awareness of the substrate or substrate consciousness, then at that point, even the substrate consciousness, it just slips into the substrate and it's simply a state of unknowing. It just black out, black out. Like being, uh, getting a general anesthesia. Um, and then, that, again, in so far as words can say anything about this, uh, that dissolves, it melts away, you have the clear light of death experience. Uh, and then, for most people, once again, without having realization of stage of completion, Mahamudra Zokshin, no prior realization of pristine awareness, that will simply be a relatively brief time of radical disorientation. And then, you just move right on through. I mean, it, 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 it just passes. And you're into this bardo of ultimate reality, or dramata, that also is generally one of radical bewilderment, unknowing, confusion. That passes on. Then you go into the bardo of becoming, and become, the bardo of becoming is where you, your karma really starts to click in. And it said in the earlier part, uh, the earlier part, because you've just been so confused, you've gone from one bewildered, disoriented state to another, a blackout, I mean really much like ignorance leading to delusion. You went into ignorance, which is the nature of the substrate, just not knowing, and then you come out of that into deluded state in the bardo of Dhammata, into a deluded state of the bardo of becoming. Probably don't even know you're dead, which is then you got that one wrong. And it's said during the first part of the bardo of becoming, then you still may, as in the, the movie of the sixth sense, still think you're alive, but it's kind of weird. You walk through walls and things like that. Um, and you, to your, to your perceptions, your mental perception, you may still appear to yourself to have the form that you had when you were alive, which then gives you good reason to think you're still alive. It's just kind of irritating that everybody ignores you. But if you're used to it, that might be okay. <laughs> be advantage. <laughs> just treating me like they used to. <laughs> you know, one of those really awful marriages, I don't even... And then, as you, as Plato said, as the whole Buddhist tradition, well, much of the Buddhist tradition says, after some time, then some hankering, some desire, some craving arises, and most likely for another embodiment. So, when it, the, the, so, yes, in a manner of speaking, the substrate dissolves into clear light. Then what happens? It reemerges to continue through the bardo of becoming, or it's called bardo of becoming, the answer is yep. That's more or less what happens. So that's the sneak preview, and then you'll find out for yourself sooner or later whether it's true. So, say for example, my girlfriend wants to go out dancing. We're off to a good start here. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to. Could you point out different scenarios which would be an example of the four measurables in this situation? <laughs> I feel like Dr. Phil. <laughs> hmm. Yes, in my experience on the dance floor, this is how I blew off the babes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a charming question. There's nothing wrong with it. 
But it's true, I've never been asked this question before. <laughs> it would be it would be fun to see how one can implement the four measurables in concrete, practical, day-to-day examples. That's probably one that will never be a day-to-day example for me. <laughs> okay, it's your girlfriend on the dance floor. She wants to dance. You don't want to dance. <laughs> Loving kindness. Say, so let's see, okay, you're a guy. Presume that was a guy. Uh, it could go either way, right? Um, you could point out a really, really handsome man there on the dance floor and say, you know, I'm not really up to it, but I think you might really enjoy dancing with him. You know, you might lose your girlfriend that way, but you know, it was a good motivation. But you could have a really enjoyable dance, right? Compassion. You could give her a lecture on impermanence. <laughs> Tell her about the hedonic pleasure and how it's really like a hyena chowing down on a It really captures her attention. <laughs> Empathetic joy, you know, among the young people I see in a lot of them dance by themselves. You know? So it's just sit back and say, babe, go for it. I'll just watch you. And then take delight in her gyrating around. And equanimity. Dance with her, but don't enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) And that was fun. Oh, Lasso. You have mentioned dream yoga a lot. What exactly is it, and what is its purpose? Okay, good, good. Dream yoga. Um... The most interesting context I've seen for it, oh, there are a couple. It, it shows up in the in the six yogas of Naropa, and there are a couple of good books on that. So Amazon.com and it will come right up. It's one of those, very interesting. Stage of completion practice, very advanced. And then within the Nyingma tradition, I was introduced to it within the context of the six bardos, which are entirely different from the six yogas of Naropa. But these six, as I just mentioned, the bardo of living, the bardo of dying, the bardo of ultimate reality, bardo of becoming, there's a bardo of conception too. Bardo of dreaming. So what among the six bardos, the bardo of dreaming is one of the bardos. It's a transitional process, a transitional phase. Bardo just means it's a phase that's between something else. Well, most things are. So you weren't dreaming, then you're dreaming, and then you're no longer dreaming. That's a bardo. So the bardo of dreaming. And Padmasambhava, in this wonderful text, translated as natural liberation, his teachings on the six bardos, shows how the dream state can be a platform for achieving enlightenment, just like the like the, the bardo of living is a platform while you're alive, while during the waking state, you can achieve enlightenment. You can achieve enlightenment when the clear light of death appears. You can achieve enlightenment when the bardo of dhammata appears. You can achieve enlightenment in the bardo of becoming, going off to a pure land. So there's multiple, multiple opportunity. Each of the six bardos is a platform or a context, a situation, an opportunity, that can be your launching pad for achieving enlightenment. So the, the bardo of dreaming is one of those. It, be, it begins by becoming lucid, and that is by becoming non-deluded. So in the non-lucid dream, of course, we fundamentally and radically got it all wrong, because we think we're awake and we're not. So that was a big boo-boo. 
And so to recognize the dream as the dream is the entry into the portal, the entryway into dream yoga. And for those of you, a number of you now are, are having lucid dreams, one or two here sporadically. And what I would encourage when that happens to make that more than entertainment, and it certainly can be very entertaining, and it can be a real playground for hedonic pleasure. And, and people have been using it for that for a long time. Right? So that's always an option. Um, but it can also be a really wonderful, fertile context for doing some very deep exploration into the nature of the mind. And so if you'd like to, as I, I use the analogy, renting renting an MRI machine, which is quite expensive, you know, to do brain scans. Um, I think it's hundreds of dollars an hour because they're very expensive contraptions. Well, when you enter into a lucid dream, you've just got, you've just leased a lab. You've taken out a lease, you're renting time in the best laboratory you can find for studying the mind because the whole laboratory is made out of mind. What more could you ask for? Throw a rock in any direction. The rock was made out of mind. Whatever it strikes is made out of mind. And you who threw it are made out of mind. So it's just all mind. So that's very cool. If you want to study mind, you're in a place that is all mind. And so, if you become lucid over the coming, let's say, let's say the next week or so, what I would suggest is, the first thing is, once you are recognizing this is a dream, while in it, relax, don't get excited, otherwise you just wake yourself up. So relax. Say, oh yeah, this is a dream I've heard about those. Yeah, this is one of those. Kind of chill. Like Paul Newman. Cool. Be cool. Be really cool. Coolest guy in, on the screen, wasn't he? Cool hand Luke. Oh yeah, it's a lucid dream. Whatever. And then maintain your stability. That is, maintain continuity of the dream. Don't let it fragment, fall apart. Remain engaged with it. Maintain with stability your ongoing cognizance of it being a dream. So we've got no relaxation. You get stability. And then, on that basis, then pay closer attention. See if you can enhance the height, the resolution of this three-dimensional movie called The Dream. So once you're kind of extending your lease time, then you can start doing, running experiments to really explore the nature of this virtual reality. And so there's a whole phase, which is called emanation and transformation, where you become a magician, you become a sorcerer within the dream, and you start emanating your own form. You be a shape changer. You start emanating things by the power of conceptual designation, power of imagination, expectation. You start projecting things into the dream that weren't there. And then transformation, you start shaping, transforming things that are there. The one into many, the many into one, the big into small, small into big. Change their forms. You can change your own form from human to canine to a block of wood to doing disappearing, disappearing act and be a simple an ephemeral presence. And so, in this way, then, really learn the nature of reality and how utterly malleable it is and how, how do you say, susceptible it is to your own imagination and conceptual designation. And it's so, so akin to the placebo effect. I mean, I, I hate even saying the word because it's such a lie. Because uh, it's just, it's, it's an effect of everything in the, anything in the universe except for a placebo. If it is an effect of the placebo, it's not a placebo effect. So it's really the weirdest thing they could possibly have called it. But that's because they didn't want to allow that the mind had effects. Go figure. But with the placebo effect, of course, because you believe, you expect, and you desire, things happen. Right? Well, apply your expectation, belief, and desire in a dream, and things happen. Change the whole thing. So if you're if you're wandering down Main Street and you'd really like to have a chat with Einstein, 
Just let the thought arise in your mind. Ah, this is, but this is Princeton, New Jersey. And this is where he, this is where he lives in the institute. He lives right there in, in a nice house right near the Institute for Advanced Studies. I'll bet he's home. He's a very quiet guy. I bet, I bet he'd speak to me if I knocked on the door. I think he's right around the corner here. And then you, and then there's a sign that says Albert Einstein lives here. Welcome. Son of a gun, just what I thought. <laughs> and you knock on the door, and this old guy comes out and says, Yes, may I help you? <laughs> and you get to have a talk with Albert Einstein, just because you thought you'd probably be there, and lo and behold. You know? So play with it. Play with it. But then once you've learned, you've really learned the, the, the nature of that phenomenal reality of the dream state, then you can do start, start doing more meaningful things. Um, one of them is you can simply stop everything in the dream, allow the dream to dissolve, but without losing your lucidity, let the whole dream vanish and implode into the substrate, as your mind implodes into substrate consciousness, and just hang out in the substrate consciousness for a while, lucidly. You haven't achieved shamatha yet, but you can get a good glimpse, a good long gaze of the substrate consciousness, just not with the sheer luminosity that you get by accessing it by way of shamatha. Now, one of the very interesting things here, especially if you've accessed the, con the substrate consciousness by way of shamatha, that is fully unveiled its luminosity, you're resting there in that experience of substrate consciousness hyphen substrate, because it's not really the substrate over there and the subject consciousness over here. <clears throat> they're not ultimately one, but they're not really bifurcated either. It's something a little bit in between, but it's really quite a unitive experience. Right? When you're resting that on that with the lights fully turned on, and any appearances arise, any thought formations, any impulses, desires arise, as you're resting in that substrate consciousness, it becomes perfectly obvious because you're perceiving it that these subjective impulses or the appearances arising, they're simply arising out of that unit of experience of the substrate, substrate consciousness. They consist of nothing other than it, and then they dissolve back into it. And that's it. You are seeing the formation. You're seeing the emergence of appearances. You're seeing where they emerge, emerge from. Where, where they are present in and where they're dissolving back into, as you are seeing, that is mentally seeing, directly perceiving with yogic perception, how, what mental processes, desires and so forth, what they're arising from. You see it, you know it through direct perception. And you see that everything arises, consists of effulgences of that substrate, substrate consciousness. It does not exist apart from it and dissolve back into it. Well, for those of you who have studied Dzogchen, when you've realized Rigpa, and you're resting in Rigpa, right? then from that vantage point, you more and more clearly see, as your awareness of Rigpa becomes less and less veiled by concepts, you more and more clearly see that everything that arises, including your own mental afflictions, craving, hostility, delusion, envy, pride, as well as all other kinds of mental processes, and all appearances to the five senses, that all of these have never existed as anything other than creative displays of pristine awareness. All appearances are, your, in fact, your own appearances, appearances of other people. But now this is from Rikpa perspective and not substrate consciousness perspective. So one's a microcosm, the other one's the big show, the one that really counts, the one that liberates. So from that perspective, 
Everything that exists consists of nothing other than, all the appearances consist of nothing other than your own appearances. But now everything hang, hinges on the word your own. Who? Zaid? Rinchen? James? Forget about it. I'm not a figment of your imagination. Neither is planet Earth, neither is this galaxy. This galaxy doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. Right? It doesn't belong to your substrate. So you can't say that all these appearances are Alan Wallace appearances. That, that's a form of psychosis. You can't say all these appearances are just belong to, just within, totally encapsulated, just, they're just mine, that is, substrate consciousness. Uh-uh. The appearances themselves, the appearances, yes, but is that all there is to them? Is that, no, that would be once again, solipsistic. Solipsistic. To think that everything is just a display of your, of your own individual substrate consciousness. That means there's only one, one sentient being in the world. <laughs> you know, not likely. Maybe if you're from Bulgaria. I mean, they, yeah, they've got some going on. Probably not. No, but from the perspective of Rikpa, which is non-individuated, beyond one and many, then all appearances, mental and sensory, all appearances without exception, are nothing other than, and you perceive them as nothing other than, creative displays of pristine awareness. So, you could go there. You could go from really fathoming the nature of dream reality, desire realm, dream reality, desire realm, fathoming it, seeing the emptiness of all the appearances in the dream realm. I mean, you know they're empty because you can change them any way you like just by changing the conceptual designation. Whoop, they're, they're, they're either vanished because you withdraw all, withdrew all conceptual designation or they change because you modify conceptual designation. Gelnam Rimbo was one of the most experienced yogis I've ever met and had the great opportunity to live with him and a real meditator on emptiness. He commented to me when we were living together back in 1988. He said, when through the realization, through the meditation on emptiness, that flow of conceptualization really stops. It's not just muted as in shamatha. It's muted, it goes dormant, but it's not completely eradicated. Right? But when the conceptual mind completely stops, as it does when you gain deep insight into emptiness, even with your eyes open, all of your senses open, that the world disappears. You're dealing with an empty holodeck. No appearances. Eyes wide open. You're not withdrawn from them, as in samadhi. That's that's common sense. Of course it wouldn't be. You've just fallen asleep. Wake, wakefully. No, here you're not asleep. And you've not withdrawn. You're totally present, but what you have withdrawn is the conceptual designation. But you cut them off the root. And there you are, he said, no appearances. Just empty. So, if you wanted to really milk your experience of lucid dreaming and then segueing into dream yoga, fathom the emptiness of all the appearances within the dream realm. Fathom it completely. So that you can be cut in, cut in half with a bandsaw, you can chop off your limbs with a hacksaw. You can do anything you like. I mean, it just, you've realized the emptiness of everything in the dream. Like, as if you're an Arya Bodhisattva in the dream. Whack, whack, whack. You want some, you want some, you want some butt? You want some butt. I mean, it's, it's soft down there, you know, not much, no, not muscle. It's a nice piece of flesh. Give away anything, give away your whole body, whatever, but chop it up, dice it, bake it, burn it, whatever, you know, just whatever, whatever, because you've totally fathomed it. 
And then, good, okay, got that one, check that one out. Go into the substrate consciousness. Dissolve it, go into the substrate consciousness. Realize the substrate consciousness, how it gives rise to dreams and sucks them back in again. And then, from there, practice Vipassana on the nature of your mind. Realize the empty nature of your own mind. Realize emptiness. Not just of the displays, but of that which displayed your own individuated mind. Realize the emptiness of your own mind. And then practice Dzogchen. And then become a Buddha. And meanwhile, everybody looking at it from outside will say, they'll watch you and you're going... (laughs) (laughs) And you're realizing Rikpa from inside the dream. And they're just saying, what a lazy bum. We're all all sitting up in the 7.5 Ochana posture, meditating well. You're just going... What a flake. That's what they said of Shantideva. Oh, what a, what a flake. What a flake. Yeah, yeah. So, that will do. Let's continue practicing. And if you can fall asleep while practicing awareness of awareness, that's very cool. If you can really let your mind fall asleep and your body fall asleep, and just go directly into the substrate consciousness, lucidly. There's something to be said for that. So, you might try it. Hasta la vista. <laughs> <laughs>